Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion, and welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast. Uh, very excited to have Mindy and Lewis Diamond joining us today and just start out with a brief background. So obviously, Mindy's got a stellar reputation, and it's really a pleasure to, to pick her brain and, and chat with her about uh, all her insights in the industry. She formed the firm in 1998 uh, without much more than a, a pad, a pen, and a phone. And obviously, working out of her home at that time, has built really a tremendous business and a tremendous brand. It's a name well-known in the industry for her thought leadership. Along the lines of thought leadership, she's had an opportunity to be quoted uh, on many occasions and share content with the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNBC, On Wall Street, Financial Advisor Magazine, and many, many more. She's had an opportunity to present it on many platforms. And I think she's just highly regarded in the industry as an expert and thought leader about the different aspects and, and different mediums in our space and the different ways that folks can practice. Mindy and Lewis also run their own podcast, uh, an educational series for advisors who are looking to explore and better understand independence. Mindy's a 1984 graduate of George Washington University. And when she's not developing her brand and helping to educate folks in the industry, she enjoys spending quality time with her family. And joining us as well, we've got her son, Lewis, who's also a partner and principal in the business. Lewis, also a graduate of George Washington University, started off his career at Ernst & Young in wealth management at Morgan Stanley and UBS, which gave him a really neat perspective from an advisor's seat, understanding the industry so that he can now better help coach and guide top teams as they look to transition to the independent and or RIA space. In his free time, he enjoys traveling as well, spending time with family and friends. And it's hard for me to say this, He's a huge fan of the New York Yankees who are either loved or, or hated because they're such a dominant brand, but a huge fan of both the Yankees and the Giants. So good morning, guys. Thanks for visiting. Oh, good morning, and thank you for having us. It's morning, a pleasure Jeff. to have you. Pleasure to have you. So Mindy, why don't you just uh, chat? I'd love to hear. I've not heard the story about how you launched the firm, and I assume it wasn't easy just kind of dialing away and networking and connecting, and here you've built this iconic brand. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how it started. Yeah, so I was smiling when you said it in the intro with little more than a pad, a pen, and the phone. There was nothing more than a pad, a pen, and a phone. Funny. So I was an accountant by degree, graduating George Washington University, and I was a really, really ill-suited accountant and hated it from the beginning. Got a job with Big 8 Public Accounting, but just didn't care for it at all and probably wasn't that good at it. But went to an accounting search firm executive search firm in New Jersey that placed accountants and looking for a job in New Jersey saying to myself, you know what, if I've got to do something I hate, I may as well do it closer to home. And the recruiter who interviewed me said, oh, honey, you shouldn't be an accountant. You should be a recruiter. And with a whole lot of encouragement from my husband who said to me, he's always been my absolute big number one fan and biggest cheerleader. Without him, I'd be nowhere. But he really gave me the courage to say, 
what the heck, we're young, I may as well try it. And literally from the first time I picked up the phone, I loved it. So when I started this business on my bedroom floor, a couple of things were true. I had had experience being a successful recruiter, but never set out to be a business owner, not even close. And if I had, I think I wouldn't have had the courage. I probably would have been paralyzed at the thought of it. But what began as being a very good recruiter on my bedroom floor and smiling and dialing and asking friends who were in the business for answers or guidance to things I couldn't answer or didn't know, it sort of began to grow and grow to a point where I reached capacity pretty quickly and said, I either need to hire other people or just turn business away. And turning business away was anathema to me. So that's sort of how it began. Very, very interesting. And Lewis, I'd love to hear. So you kind of started off in sort of an advisor type capacity and learned the business from that perspective and then eventually joined the family business to help continue the growth trajectory. Talk a little bit about that path. Yeah, happy to. So I took an extremely, extremely original path in life, first going to George Washington University where Mindy went. And then the first full-time job out of college was with Princeton Young in a consultant role. Also Mindy's first job. And now, of course, within Diamond Consultants. But in all seriousness, that path was one that was charted by myself. It wasn't like there was any sort of influence or requirement that I take a similar path as my mother. Before joining EY, I had the opportunity to work on two different teams of advisors. One was a relatively small group in UBS in New Jersey just helping with some of the client associate type work. And the other one was with one of the larger Manhattan-based wealth management groups within Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. So they were relatively short stints, but it did give me an interesting perspective on what it takes to grow a business, what the day-to-day like is for an advisor, and where some of their potential pain points might be, and what was it that caused the business to really grow versus some that were a little bit more stagnant. And then after say two years or so working at Ernst & Young, I came to the realization probably much sooner than, than many that working for a big time company just really wasn't for me anymore. And the training was impeccable, made great friends, learned a lot. And quite honestly, I wouldn't have been the same consultant or recruiter and now business leader that I am without that experience. But as I kind of hit a ceiling on what I wanted to do within the consulting world, I was inceptioned a little bit by my mom and dad about what was it that I really wanted to do. And what we identified was I really enjoyed the client work, being in an entrepreneurial environment. I liked being in financial services and wanted to do something where I felt like I was making a difference. So instead of formatting PowerPoint decks until 2 a.m. and literally figuring out the difference between different hues of blue and green, I made the best decision I ever made, which was coming into Diamond Consultants now um, a little over five years ago and having the distinct privilege of partnering with both my mom and my dad on a daily basis. No, I think it's fantastic. I've always had this kind of little dream or notion without ever really expressing it or influencing that maybe at some point one of my kids would be interested in our business and they're both in the industry. And it's funny when you talk about deck building, I listened to my son, his first couple of years, I won't mention the name, working for a very large firm, has built plenty of decks, I think more than he would care to. And he's just sort of moved on from that within the last few months. But it's kind of neat that things came full circle. And I also think that it's kind of cool that rather than talking about sort of the wirehouse and bank space academically, you know, you had a chance to be exposed to it, which I suspect would give you some, some neat intuitions there. 
So Mindy, just going back to kind of launching the firm, I'd love to hear what it looked like when the bedroom floor, you know, and your pad and pen were no longer adequate. What did that look like as you were starting to get more deal flow and build your network and kind of what, what was the step from taking this thing from kind of a home-based business to, you know, more of a a full-fledged, what, what did that evolution look like? Yeah. So terror, absolute terror. I mean, as I said, I never really fancied myself as a business owner. So it really, I was, we moved from my bedroom floor till I probably took a few years till I allowed my husband to set about building me an office. We finished our basement and building an office in the basement. That was a huge step for me. And then the next step, a couple of years later, was finding office space in Chester, New Jersey, about 10 minutes from our home that was above a pizza place. And it was just that, a small office above a pizza place. By that point, I probably had a couple of recruiters working for me. The terror came from the fact that so long as I was working on my bedroom floor, it was a low stakes endeavor. It was more of a hobby. It was if I failed, nobody would know, nobody would care. It was would have been no big deal. But the thought of moving to an office and hanging a shingle out meant that the stakes rose. And if I failed, it would be more public. And I literally was terrified, terrified. And I, I mean, the theme of my professional life is my husband being my greatest cheerleader for sure. Because he was, oh, I came from a very conservative family where you walked the straight and narrow and did the next most practical thing. And my husband said, you know, he believed in me. He said, the worst that happens is you fail and you can always go back to being an accountant again, which to me would have been the worst thing. But, but that was really what gave me the courage to do it. That's really, really cool. So obviously I have to ask the question that jumped out from what you just said. Was it good pizza? Uh, it was mediocre pizza. Mediocre pizza. Okay, mediocre it... pizza and a very weird landlord, like the weirdest <laughs> landlord ever. He was creepy. That was, oh that, was that one. <laughs> That's funny. A, a, a crappy, strange landlord and mediocre pizza. Okay, I thought it would have yeah. been an amazing story if it was the best pizza ever. Then we'd have oh, yeah, to figure no. out if they were no. still in business. So No, but the good, you know what? The good news about that, mediocre pizza and weird landlord sort of gave us the impetus and courage to move to what really became the first home of Diamond Consultants. We, Howard, my husband and I, we bought a building. It was a, an old historic home that had been built in 1890. It had crooked floors and but it had amazing charm. It felt very much like us. And we were there for a good 10 years. It was a wonderful space and a first real, real space where we started having staff meetings every week and we were already 10 or 12 people. So probably mediocre pizza and weird landlords serve as a good impetus to get out. That sounds great. All good catalysts. So yeah. continuing on that sort of notion of catalysts for change. So Lewis, in the time that you spent in the business, I'm wondering kind of what changes you've seen and maybe, you know, in two facets, I guess one would be the business, how it operates, technology. I don't know how long the podcast has been going on, but what changes have you seen sort of operationally or the way that the firm markets? And maybe the second question is, have you seen much change in the way that teams are looking for solutions and what teams are finding attractive as they explore independence? Yeah, absolutely. So it is true. I mean, I came in as only five, maybe a little bit more years ago, which is a relatively short period of time. But even in that period of time, we've seen just a massive, massive change in not just the way our business operates, the way that we're generating revenue, the way we practice efficiency, the way we're contacting advisors and communicating with them. 
But I think you're definitely right. The, the advisor mindset has shifted quite a bit too. And what advisors worry about, what they care about, what's table stakes, what's most important, and especially to who are the leading firms and what is the typical life cycle of a, an advisor's due diligence process looks different. So t- taking the first part of the question, um, when I first started, I, I was extremely privileged in that I came into a relatively much mature business that had an impeccable reputation that Mindy and the rest of our team had cultivated over the years. It had some brand awareness. And Mindy has always been incredible at thought leadership, at coming up with an idea or a concept that she just thinks of when she's on the phone with someone and turns it into action, um, turns it into an article, a column, um, a blog. So that was always there. And that was, I think, the, the starting point for where we are now. So over the last couple of years, we've immensely built our marketing efforts. Um, we've ratcheted up the folks that we're working with and have, I think, poured gasoline on, on the fire, where we've expanded the personal email addresses we've collected to distribute our weekly or biweekly articles. We're much more visible within the financial media space. And then two, two and a half years ago or so, I remember Mindy coming to me and saying that she had this crazy idea to start a podcast. And at the time, I listened to maybe a podcast here or there and never really thought that it was a medium for business. Initially, she set out to record two or three episodes, just answering some of the basic questions that wirehouse advisors had about independence. But to her credit, pushed through, was sure, I'm sure very uncomfortable, wasn't really a podcast listener herself, but common theme in our business, she saw what advisors wanted and came to the realization that advisors consume information differently. Some would love to receive a phone call from us. Others want to read um, something in their personal email, um, email boxes. Others read the media. Others want to review podcasts. Others just talk to their friends. So by doing that, it increased the reach of our brand. It certainly expanded the funnel. Um, of folks that are now in our orbit. And that's really been the biggest change in our business is I think the the podcast taking off, just the expansion of our marketing efforts, and also at the same time, staying completely true to what had been built before me, which was doing right by people, being objective, not being motivated by money or commissions or a deal, much more so by how would you want to counsel your friend or how would you counsel your brother? And while our business has grown and our revenue has grown, um, we still have that same commitment of integrity that Mindy instilled and everyone that works for us. Um, yeah, that, the, the concept of counseling is a great one because I think the most powerful selling occurs when you're not selling at all. When you have ideas and you mm-hmm. have guidance and you're coaching, you're actually a much more effective salesperson when you're not selling at all. And that's how I view the business. That's how I try to approach what we do. So I think I would suspect people really relate to that well. So I want to flip back, Mindy, and just kind of ask you a question. So what Lewis mentioned that the way that you touch advisors today is different now. You touch them through different mediums, whether you're reaching out by phone, whether they're listening to your content, reading your content. But even though you touch them you know, through different mediums, do you find certain central core things that most advisors are looking for or that they would prioritize when they're considering independence? Yeah, good question. So. You know, when I started the business 23, almost 24 years ago, I was trained to be a recruiter using a very transactional approach. It was about making a deal. It was about making a sale. 
But I figured out very early on in beginning to recruit advisors that not only wouldn't that work, but it just didn't feel good. The notion of trying to jam a round peg in a square hole or trying to convince somebody to do something that either they didn't want to do or was only about my personal self-interest just never felt good. So probably aside from the scariness of realizing, you know, I was building a business and not just a hobby and moving from my bedroom floor to a real office and some of the other steps of, of building a real business, probably one of the scariest steps I took was in jettisoning the tried and true transactional recruiting approach and beginning to sort of forge my own approach. And I don't mean, believe me, I'm not such a trailblazer. But the notion of really listening, of starting with what's important to you, like what's going on? Uh, you know, if you're happy where you are, of course you should stay put. If you're less than happy where you are, I'm so happy to talk with you about what the options look like. But what I began to figure out was that what advisors wanted was not to be sold, but to be educated, to be guided. And if I had to pick a term for our approach, I'd say it's gratuitous education. We have no agenda or expectation. We have relationships with advisors that span 10 and 20 years. Many of them, most of them will never move and we don't care. Our greatest pleasure in a day is not in closing a deal, though we're really good at that too, but our greatest pleasure is in having a meaningful conversation where with an advisor, one that where we can really add value to their thinking because an advisor's goal or an advisor is supposed to be great at advisor client and advising their clients. He or she is not supposed to be great at understanding the industry landscape. So to answer your question more directly, what advisors are looking for, first of all, is to be educated. The industry landscape or the waterfall of possibilities has expanded a lot. And in its expansion, it feels very opaque to a lot of people, hard to get their arms around, um, overwhelming. And so the notion of really educating them on this, the continuum of possibilities and the, the part of the space that's really expanded the most is the independent space. And they just don't understand that, nor should they. That's not an indictment. That's just saying if you spent your lifetime as an employee advisor, the last thing you should understand is what it means to be independent. I think the popularity of series like this, Jeff, mine, this one, and many others really is indicative of just how hungry people are for education. And so what they want is education. What they want is to be heard. What they want is not to be sold. And what they want is to be challenged by someone, have someone challenge their beliefs, but by someone that they trust and can feel who really has their best interests at heart. And I think we're really pretty good at that. No, that makes a lot of sense. So as you kind of think about that educational process, Lewis, maybe talk about as you educate advisors and try to help them understand what it is they're looking for, because a lot of times, you know, I tell people not in a, a mean way, but they don't know what they don't know, right? They've sort of lived in a certain aspect of the industry for a long time, and they know that really well, but there's so much foreign to them with the notion of independence. As you start to coach advisors, what are some of the sort of the key things that they prioritize that are most important? If you think about autonomy and compensation and flexibility, technology, and I realize it's different per team, but what would be some of the key ingredients that most advisors are looking for when they consider independence? 
Yeah, so I think it, it, it differs a little bit depending upon if an advisor's starting point is as a captive W-2 employee of Morgan, Merrill, UBS, Wells Fargo, et cetera, versus if they're already independent, they're already registered with LPL or Commonwealth, et cetera. It's a little bit different, but really it's all shades of freedom, flexibility, and control. We use that grouping of words more than anything, and it can manifest itself in many different ways. So take the word freedom. It's oftentimes freedom to market themselves more freely. So not being able to create a brand or differentiate themselves from the team down the hallway um, or using social media, that's a major, major one. Not every advisor wants it, but most advisors, if they had an opportunity to, would love to establish a legacy, create something that's memorable to clients and make it so that they can target people differently. That's one example of freedom. I think if you look at the word flexibility, it's flexibility to uh, advise clients the way you think is best. So it's being able to go off platform, being able to recommend multiple lending solutions, being able to pick and choose technology and not having a one size fits all approach. Um, if you look at control, it's control over compensation. That's a major. We, we always see a large uptick in advisor conversations when the big firms come out with their annual compensation plans. And it's kind of like advisors do everything they're supposed to do and more. And then all of a sudden the cheese is moved and now they don't really know what they're going to make. They have different incentive hurdles to recommend checking accounts or to recommend or refer clients to the bank and advisors hate that. So th those tend to be the big things for really most advisors. I would say more so for firehouse teams. If you're looking at groups that already have their independence, it's typically economics are definitely a big one. It's I'm paying my broker dealer, X dollars in grid payout and admin fees and platform fees, et cetera. And am I really getting sufficient value for how much I'm paying? And I think advisors are always very comfortable paying for stuff that they use and paying for value. But when all of a sudden there's a changing landscape and for half the price, you can get the same amount of value you get from one firm over the other, not to mention one other firm is gonna pay you 40, 50% of your GDC to move over that tends to be a pretty compelling reason. But even regardless of economics, we all know that making a change is risky. It's a ton of work. It's one of the hardest things an advisor is going to do. So just because economics are marginally better is not going to motivate someone, regardless of the channel. There has to be things that they either feel like they can't accomplish for clients or that is really bogging down the business and impeding their growth. So when there's enough motivation, because now the, the pain of staying is too great, that's what incentivizes advisor movement. And the great thing is for advisors, regardless of whether you're at Commonwealth, Raymond James, UBS, or you're already an RIA, is that there's more and more options today where an advisor can satiate their needs. Uh, if they're most concerned about X, there's something for them. There's never going to be a perfect solution, but now more than ever, it's there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to independence or to being an advisor. It's really, you get to pick what it is you want, what's most important to you. And then that's where we do our best work is we listen and we ask the questions. We hear what's motivating someone, where are they looking to be in one, three, five, 10 years from now. And then we can put on our consultant hat and recommend um, a short list of firms or platforms or custodians that are most going to meet that advisor's needs so that they can focus on their clients and not make due diligence a full-time endeavor. No, that sounds great. And I'm just thinking about Mindy's comment about 
square peg in a round hole and trying to, you know, transactionally close and push people what the business used to look like versus what it looks like today. That made me think about a team that we're in the process of onboarding now. And they had a notion about a custodian that they wanted to affiliate with, which is a great custodian. But they did a lot of advanced trading. And after months of sort of banging our heads against the wall and and the advisors saying, I feel like we're going to continue to be a square peg in a round hole. We sort of deviated and just did one phone call with a different custodian. And all of a sudden it was enlightening for them and for us, frankly, uh, about how they actually fit and, you know, how that ended up being a better solution. And granted, they would have probably joined the other way, but would they have operated as seamlessly and easily and as happily? So that kind of consulting and pushing them say, look, before, you know, you make your final decision, try this out. And they did. And it was incredible. Months of hard work just sort of resolved itself and they found a platform that suited them better. And I think that's, I think that's our role. Uh, so Lewis, and, you, and you know, Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff, forgive me for interrupting. Oh, please, I was please, just going to say, had that team sensed that you had an agenda or a horse in the race, that there was a reason why you were, you were suggesting that they look at the other custodian, that in some way it was going to enrich you more, they might have felt a little differently about it. But when, when you develop a relationship rooted in trust and the person that you trust, the consultant, whether that be you or people like us or anyone, then makes a suggestion and you really believe that that suggestion is being made for your best interest without any agenda at all, that no matter what you choose, it's going to be okay. I think that sets up for a very, very powerful relationship. And it's probably the thing I'm most proud of in our business is this sort of um, mutual trust that we develop with anyone we're lucky enough to counsel. Yeah, and I, and I think they see you as an advocate, right? It's your, the only agenda that you should be working off of is their agenda, not ours. And I think that's something that we share in terms yeah. of the way that we approach the business. And it's, it's a powerful, it's a powerful sure. agenda. So, For sure. So Lewis was talking about folks who are breaking away, whether they be captive or independent, freedom, flexibility, and control. What do you see, Mindy, for teams who are considering less of a platform change and more of sort of a succession path. What do you think are the priorities as you start to speak to some of the advisors who are aging to the point where they're starting to think about monetizing their business or protecting the value of what they built for their family, continuity for their clients? What would be some of the priorities when they have that lens as they think about planning? Well, it's still rooted in freedom, flexibility, and control, but it may be with more of a lens towards succession. So it's, For the soon-to-be-retiring advisor, it's the freedom and flexibility to retire out the way he or she wants to. You know, a lot of times if an advisor works for a wirehouse, it's a wonderful thing that the wirehouses have created these retire-in-place programs, but they are highly proscriptive about how an advisor can retire out. He has to be out in a certain period of time. He can only be associated with the business in a certain way. The, the younger generation has to buy the business but doesn't really own it. It's highly proscriptive. The notion of being independent the advisor has both the retiring advisor and the next gen advisor has the freedom to craft the succession plan however it works best. But the second thing, and probably one of the most important things, and the constituent we hear, hear from most are the next gen inheritors. 
while those retire in place programs are wonderful ways for senior advisors to to monetize their life's work and an equally good way for a younger advisor to inherit or buy a sizable book of business in the end that next gen inheritor doesn't really own the business in fact lewis he can talk about it better than i can he just did a podcast interview with a young woman 35 or 38 years old who is the next gen inheritor and when it came time for her merrill lynch partner to decide whether to retire via Merrill CTP or career transition program or to go independent, they opted for independent. And the reason is because they wanted to craft their own plan. The next generation did not want to be locked in for the life of the agreement. The next generation knew that during the life of the agreement, they'd have no control over what changes their firm, in their case, Merrill Lynch, would make over whether it be compensation or how they needed to serve their clients or how bureaucratic it became. And so it became a one-sided equation and one that as a young team, they couldn't live with. And so succession for both the senior advisor and the next-gen inheritor is probably one of the biggest drivers toward movement today. Yeah, and I think what you just described is, again, you know, another iteration of that freedom, flexibility, and control, right? So inside the wirehouses, while they may have programs, it sort of dictates and there are a lot of constraints about what happens and how things work versus in the independent world, it's really a very bespoke solution. You can design almost anything in any way that you want, depending on what your priorities are. So maybe carry on on that theme a little bit, Lewis. So if, if as you look at some of the teams that you guys have helped consult uh, that might have been moving with succession or M&A in mind, are there ingredients that you see that make a good partnership between buyers and sellers? You know, how do they sort of match the priorities of what I'm looking for, whether I'm selling to next gen, whether I'm selling to a third party, whether I'm selling to one of these big platforms that are out there rolling up businesses? How do you sort of create a good marriage there when you guys, when Diamond is in the middle of that equation? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it it is, the, the consideration set is quite different. If you run your own business today, you already own your own equity and you know, you already have a flavor for independence. Very different than working with a wirehouse team where I think what Mindy said is spot on. What we see when it comes to succession of independent businesses is one of the first things is determining how much control the retiring advisor, who's typically the, the principal owner of a business, is willing to cede. And everyone is, most people are fine with giving up control over compliance or HR or billing. But what advisors oftentimes either struggle to give up or it's just something they're passionate about, so there's nothing wrong with holding on to control, is control over investment management. It's control over the planning process, control over what their day-to-day looks like. So that's one of the first things we do is figure out first what someone's goals are. If an advisor is looking to retire in 10 years, they're going to put more of an emphasis on the control aspect than someone who wants to be out in a year. But depending upon what sort of control levers they're willing to cede is one of the one of the clearest cut ways to differentiate between what types of firms, what types of buyers, or what types of successors might make sense. For instance, Jeff, I think one of the really exciting things about the way Stratos approaches succession is that you don't have a one-size-fits-all approach, that you have businesses under your, your umbrella that some pick individual stocks, some outsource to your TAMP, others use SMAs, some work with more retail clients, other ultra-high net worth. 
And we're seeing that as being a very popular method of succession because there's a lot of platforms out there that will allow advisors to keep control over what they want to, what they're passionate about, what they're good at, but give up the things that they don't. There's nothing wrong at all with some of the more roll-up type firms, the Mercers, the Cap Trust, the world. If your business model is consistent with theirs, they're terrific. They, they have d- deep roster of people. They're extremely competitive in valuation. And that may be the best approach for someone, but not for everyone. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things is what levers of control someone is willing to give up. One, one other thing I'll mention is, um, I think right now in the independent community, so meaning practices that are affiliated with LPL, Raymond James, Commonwealth, Sutera, et cetera, we are seeing now that there's somewhat of a ceiling that's naturally developed within a broker dealer. We wrote an article about this in Investment News recently that if you're a $5 million practice with a broker dealer, regardless of the quality of that broker dealer, typically an advisor would prefer to sell the business to someone within their BD. But maybe it's because of their geography. Maybe it's because of the complexity of their business. It oftentimes is difficult if you're an advisor of significant scale to figure out, is there really the right option within our broker dealer? And that means that they probably haven't cultivated the next generation and or the valuation has just become so rich. So I know Stratos does a great job with, um, with, with, with this, but it oftentimes is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a turning point for a business where the owner has to decide whether I should sell the business externally and they, they give us a call and we help them to source a multitude of different buyers, or am I going to potentially sacrifice the quality of success in my succession plan and sell internal to my broker dealer. Um, so those are just two, two things I would mention that we normally see when we're working with advisors approaching succession that are already independent. Yeah, that all makes sense and some good observations. So as you think about succession, maybe this brings us back to the family thing a little bit. I'd love to ask both of you guys what that dynamic is like. As much as I've aspired or thought it would be amazing to maybe have my kids in the business someday. And I think, does Howard work with you also, Mindy? Is he part of the team? Yes, yes. So Howard came first. Howard joined me about 15 years ago after a successful law practice. He was starting to hate being a lawyer. And I was at a point where I was keeping my records literally and not lying on like little sticky pads, you know, little notepads. I had like little yellow pieces of paper all over the place. I never missed a deadline. I never missed anything. It was a system that worked for me, but it wasn't a tenable system. We weren't building a practice. And so Howard came in and really institutionalized it. And he joined me about 15 years ago. So yes. And then obviously with Lewis on the team, so it's, it's just an interesting dynamic. Not everyone, it doesn't mean that you don't adore your family, but not everyone could work with their family. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of a nice solve. Obviously, you're young and have a lot of energy and a lot of gas in the tank, but you've sort of built in now sort of the seeds for succession. But I'm curious, just the family dynamic, if there's anything to be mindful of that, that people should think about if they're involving family and business, be it a spouse or be it a child, how have you felt... What are some best practices to think about if you're building a family-based business? Yeah, so I love that question because it's a softball for me. I mean, is every day perfect? No. I'd say it was probably more of a challenge at first working with my husband than with my son. And I'll tell you why. My husband and I, you know, the notion of being together literally 24-7 was hard. But we figured out probably a couple of months in that 
you know, we sort of text and email each other during the day instead of really being on top of each other. And it works. And it actually works beautifully. When Lewis came in, um, I was very, very nervous about it. I was excited and thrilled. And as he said, we never wanted to push him. I don't know that we ever even suggested it until he sort of came to us and said, I think it's what I want to do. And of course, secretly, I was doing the yippee dance, but I didn't want him to feel pushed. But worried about it. Because again, that old fear of, oh my God, what if it fails? Like if it failed and I took Howard and I down, all right, I could live with that. But the thought of failing and taking my son down, that was just, I, I couldn't have lived with that. And once I got over that, I think the only real issue, truly from my perspective, the only real issue Lewis and I had was the first couple of months, and I think he'll agree with this, I think he approached me when I would say, you know, you might want to think about doing it this way, or what do you think about this? He would hear me as if I was his mommy, instead as if I was someone who had a lot more experience than he did and knew the business and was training or mentoring him. And I called him on it. I said, this is not me asking my five-year-old son to empty the dishwasher and you're getting defensive. This is we're building what will eventually be a partnership and now very much is. And I hope that you can not look at me as your mommy when we're here, but rather somebody who has valuable experience. That was a game changer. Since that time, we may disagree every once in a while, but it's more very, very, very healthy disagreement about how to handle something that I think actually challenges us and makes each of us better at what we do. I can tell you for me, bringing Lewis in and Howard in, but we're talking succession now, bringing Lewis in was the greatest gift of my life. It exceeded my expectations by a thousand. He helps me to see the world in a different way. He challenges me for sure. And when you were asking about how the business has morphed or changed in the last five years, Lewis being available. He is my, he, he and I, we think alike, we finish each other's sentences. So for me, it's not just about, you know, I'm giving my son a lead, but he's the greatest partner in the world in working in, we truly are a partner. He's much more sort of in the weeds than I am. And my, I'm much more of a big picture thinking. And as far as counseling and advisor, that's the best combination in the world for someone because they get the best of both of us, but he has made me better. And he has really freed me to do more of what I love, which is the sort of creative marketing end of things. And I think he is just best at day-to-day -day deal management. He's extraordinarily good at it. He's crushing it. I think he's exceeded his own expectations. So I could go on and on and forgive me, I won't. I'm truly not saying that as his mother. I'm really just saying that as an objective recruiter who's working with someone that's incredibly talented. And oh, by the, by the way, he happens to be my son. Tomorrow's my 58th birthday. I have no intention of retiring because actually being free to do more of the creative stuff that I love, just me, I'm more jazzed about my work than I probably have ever been. So forgive me for being so long-winded, but that's my favorite no, question I, in the whole world. I think <laughs> it's great. And, and it's also insightful because one of my fears was, you know, would I micromanage? Would I, you know just sort of that separation, right? Of, you know, it's the family relationship, but there's also a business relationship. And, you know, they say that when a parent coaches a t-ball team, that they're harder on their kids than they are on the other. So I've just always thought about that, but I think you explained it in a, in a really interesting way. And 
And I also understand that the fact that he brings some great skill sets to the table allows you to focus on the stuff that you love because you have someone who you trust and respect in the role that he's in doing a fantastic job on the stuff that he's doing. So it sounds like it's really a great Jeff, compliment. I think the only two things I would add, and I, I'm gratified and it makes me smile to, to hear the description that, that Mindy gave. The first thing is you hear me, even on this podcast, toggling between Mindy and mom. That was a small tweak that sounds trivial, but it was incredibly powerful because I was worried that it come into the office and our employees, the industry says, oh, what does your mom think? Or if I'm referring to Mindy, I said, oh, my mom said this. And it just saying that I think would belittle me. It would take away some of my perceived power. So using the word Mindy is, I think it to me, it was very helpful in getting over that kind of mother-child dynamic and helped me to rise to be someone who could think on their own and kind of chart my own course. Um, the, the other extremely important thing that really was there from day one was that there, there was not a sense of micromanagement. Uh, obviously, in the beginning, there's a learning curve and have to learn to think in a certain way and to master my competency. But once there was trust that if I was given a task, it wouldn't drop, that I would do it in a similar way that Mindy would, I'm really able to, to, to do what I want to do, do, do it the way that I want to. And it helps me to be my own person, to come up with my own projects and initiatives. And it just allows me to have more fun. I think if there was a sense of hovering and you have to do it this way and you have to tell me about every little thing, I think I would hate this business. But yeah. the fact that I've been able to learn from, from the master, have the best possible coach in the world who's no one's ever going to be more vested in my success than, than a parent. It's been an extremely powerful combination and it's been the best decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's really neat to hear you guys talk about this and uh, you used the word toggling and I like that because I think you, that you should probably refer to her as both, right? She's your business partner and, but also a family member. And I think it's actually good. It's probably more natural to toggle between Mindy and my, you know, that relationship. You're not hiding from it, but it's also, there's a business partnership there as well. And it sounds like the skills are complementary, and, and I think that's a great thing. So you guys have developed a, a terrific, terrific brand. I know just recently in the last probably year or two, we've started to do some stuff together and I think you guys are just professional. You represent advisors looking to make a move in a very thoughtful way with that consultive nature, which I think is really important. So I'm extremely, extremely excited about continuing to, to partner and to collaborate. I guess I just want to ask you guys one last question. What piece of advice might you give as a result of what you've seen to advisors who are exploring independence or actually just running their own independent businesses, what are the very best practitioners doing that I could or should be doing as a practitioner to sharpen my saw? That's a great Lewis, question. you want to go first? Yeah, and I would say the, to me, the, the best advisors, and it doesn't really matter what channel of the industry they're in, they've built a great team around them. So, I mean, the, we, we see the, the Barron's list and the Forbes list, and obviously, Revenue and assets is a major gauge of, of advisor success in this industry. It's how they're measured. Valuation multiples are sometimes set on that. But the best, best advisors, they've set up a, a team structure in a way where they get to do what's most soulful and practical to them, whether that's bringing in clients or running investments. And then they have the right people and the right seats to do the other things. It's the advisors, and there's plenty, that do everything. They're the PM, 
they're the rainmaker, they're seeing all of the clients, they're the CEO that I think either get burnt out very early, they're working 70 hours a week and they just don't like this anymore, or they just become, I think, very insular in their approach. And sometimes those advisors, even if they have impeccable businesses, it's really, really difficult for them to seed control, which oftentimes is what's needed to either help the business get to the next level. It'll certainly be needed if they ever want to retire and monetize their business. And I think it's necessary to eliminate the ceiling and help advisors' businesses grow beyond just the practice that it might be today. Super. Mindy, what are your thoughts? Yes. Yeah, I would say begin with the end in mind. I think the best business owners don't just, yes, they work in the business. They're great practitioners. They're great advisors. They're great relationship managers. They're great stewards, but they're also great business people and they force themselves to rise above and work on the business oftentimes. And when they begin the business or when they're first building the business, they begin with the end in mind so that every move they make Every decision they make, every step they take for the business sort of coalesces or works toward the common goal of whatever the end game is. And that could be a big end game of we want to go public someday. It could be a big end game, you know, I want to sell to a bank for $100 million someday. Or it could be I want to bring my son into the business. Whatever it is, if the goal is something small, I want to bring my son into the business, then everything I do, every decision I make between now and the time he comes in is is this decision going to be in the best interest of my son? And so whatever that end game is, those are the questions I think they need to ask themselves. The businesses that are built with the end in mind, built that way from the beginning, that are deli- where the business owners are deliberate and thoughtful, are always the ones that thrive the most. Yeah, two great pieces of advice. Thank you both. So I guess we're at the point where we're going to wrap with a little podcast karaoke. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this, this could be the absolute highlight of this of this chat. So, oh uh, boy! <laughs> so yeah, tell me what what are you guys singing, Lewis? So yes, we're gonna sing. I'm happy to do a quick intro. Um, we're gonna sing. <laughs> we're, we're gonna duet. Um, New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. I love it. I love this. <laughs> but he's got to tell you why. I also need to tell you, I am a very good recruiter. I have the worst voice. So this is a testament to, of two things, how much I respect you, Jeff, and how much I love my son. How's that? <laughs> I'll take it. We'll take both. We'll take both. Oh, okay, good. Oh, my gosh. All right, Lewis, well, I'll let you introduce the song, and then I'm going to mute myself so you guys can share your God-given Wait, talents. Can I ask you the hugest favor? Literally, yeah. just a second, as if I'm cute. I just heard my husband pull in. He has a beautiful voice. I have the worst voice. Can I ask him to join us? Yeah, I'd love that. would be great. Oh, yay. Hold on. That would be second. great. Off guard. All right. Ready? Lewis, go ahead. You're going to tee it up, right? Yep. Okay. So we, we've selected today for our, uh, I don't know, what's, what's, what's three people? I guess our, our quartet, maybe, close to it. Um, trio. Trio. There you go. New York, New York by Frank Sinatra in honor of this baseball season that has been um, really impeded. We are huge Yankee fans in our family, um, go to probably 20 plus games a year uh, normally. And after every game, um, the Yankees play New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. So usually they play the Sinatra version when we win, um, and then they'll play a different version if they lose. So this is in honor of 
the season not really going according to plan and just an ode to uh, a big part of our life, the New York Yankees. So that's kind of where we are today. And let's take it from the top. Ready? Yeah. Spreading, Spreading the, the news. news. I'm I wanna be a part of it. Part of New, it. York, <laughs> New York, New York. These vagabond shoes are longing, longing to stray. Right through the very heart of it. Part of it. New York, New York. I wanna wake up in a city that doesn't sleep and find a king of the hill on the hill. These little town blues are melting away. Melting away. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York. Wait, can we stop there? Yeah, that's great. No, that's perfect. We have like 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, God. I don't think he can hear you. These little town blues. Oh, good for you. That's why you're making us do it, because you actually have a good voice. No, no, no. I can make it there. How come he can't hear me? Anywhere. <laughs> it's up to you. New York. New Oh, Family bands coming next so, year. So here, this is funny, bud. You couldn't hear your mom and dad because you were probably playing it and you didn't have an earpiece on. They stopped singing halfway and you were belting out a solo for the second half. <laughs> well, good, because they, they were extremely early. So it was really throwing off the, the vibe anyway. Holy cow. <laughs> so look, you guys can work well together as a family. It seems like there could be some musical dissension. Maybe you don't collaborate oh as well God, musically. Oh, my God, for sure. Yes, for sure. For sure, for sure. 
Lewis wanted a big solo and all of a sudden Howard comes in and steals some of his thunder. Is yeah. yeah, it's a lot going on there. Yeah. Uh, hey, you guys were great. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I think. it was so much fun, Jeff. Thank Thanks, you. Jeff. Yeah, a lot of good insights. Thanks for listening to the Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.